Welcome to Not Fair, the podcast, where we call out the inequalities, obstacles, or just plain inconveniences that stand in our way. I'm your host, Zoe Mitchell. Finding work for almost anyone is hard. When I'm on the hunt for a new gig, I waste hours endlessly scrolling through job postings that I know I'll never hear back from, reading and rereading and rereading my cover letters, begging friends to help me practice the day before that big interview. But for some, finding a job is even harder than that. And for others who do find work that they really want, it isn't always exactly what they envisioned. Today, two stories of people struggling to write something they know is wrong at their work. Whether it's realizing that change is needed at a current job or struggling to find one at all. First reporter Mariel Carricker on the difficulties of finding employment and supporting oneself as a person with a disability. Kayla Furbish, a junior studying psychology at Boston University, says when she first came to campus, she didn't know if she could handle the stress of college. Not because of stress from homework or living on her own, but because of the toll it took on her body. Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is a connective tissue disorder. There's a bunch of types, um, and the symptoms can range for all the different types, but the general idea is that you have joint instability because the connective tissue, which is like the glue that kind of holds your skin and your organs and your blood vessels and your joints all together is defective. Kayla was officially diagnosed at 15 years old. She experienced symptoms her whole life, but no doctors knew the cause. When she was a freshman in high school, she had a severe shoulder dislocation that couldn't be put back into place. After reconstructive surgery for a new shoulder socket, the doctors finally gave her a diagnosis. So for me, that entails a lot of joint instability and dislocations, um, GI problems, like trouble digesting a lot of things because my organs are like, don't know what they're doing, and um, trouble with wound healing. So you need to like be really careful or if you're having surgery, they have to like do a lot of layers of stitching or else they'll just like open back up because it's hard for things to like stick. Kayla is hoping to be a psychologist after college, but finding a job, even a part-time gig while she's in school, is challenging. In the back of my mind, there's always this concern like, why would somebody hire me where all these risks are involved when they could hire someone who's equally qualified and can do everything that the job's asking or isn't a big risk to have as far as like health concerns or injuries. That's fine. <laughs> so usually when I'm applying for a job, I don't mention anything about a disability. Um, if they ask me if I'm able to do certain things and I know that I can do them, but it might be risky for me, I will say that I can do them even though I probably shouldn't. Stigma is one of the biggest issues. That's Christopher Robinson, the outreach and training coordinator for the Boston University Office of Disability Services. Often there's a myth that accommodations or supports for persons with disabilities are exceptionally expensive or they compromise the work environment or they'll compromise the uh, work communication hierarchy. Robinson is an American Sign Language interpreter and he supports technology to make BU classrooms more accessible. He says accommodations for workers with disabilities can be simple. There are so many things that we do within corporations, uh, state agencies, that accommodate work productivity. Uh, there was a generation in time when people were allowed to take smoke breaks or to pause their in-office activity. And that was just the 
culture. It wasn't written into any policy at all. So there was a culture of taking pause. Well, there are individuals with disabilities, let's say a person who has MS or chronic fatigue syndrome, who may have to take as many or fewer breaks during the day to be able to recharge or to rest so that their disability doesn't overcome them. First floor, going up. We don't want to think of people with disabilities as one monolithic type. The challenges that may be encountered by somebody who's deaf might be different than somebody who has a mobility. Those might be different than somebody who is blind. David D'Arcangelo is the director of the Massachusetts Office on Disability. He has a rare eye disease and he has been legally blind since he was young. He says that choosing to disclose your disability to an employer is a major dispute for people with disabilities when they apply for a job. For certain people, disclosure is going to be important to them or identifying as a person with a disability is, is, is important for them. And then others are more trepidatious about it, saying, hey, I don't, want to, I don't want my resume to fall to the bottom of the pile because I'm going to get screened out or something. Can you vanilla latte? Thank you. Despite her challenges, Kayla is working as a barista at Starbucks. The job involves long hours standing and moving quickly to make drinks for endless lines of students. Kayla wants to work, but it comes at a price. She says she feels some shame about her limitations. I have a lot of friends with EDS, and when they are getting jobs or dealing with school, a lot of them are very vocal about saying, these are my needs, and you know, I need this to be accommodated in order for me to work here or to go to school. And I think that's reasonable, but I'm not bold in that way. So I've never asked for the things that I need. I usually like take the hit and either decide I'll feel sick tomorrow or I'll be in pain tomorrow. Next stop, Boston University East. This year, the Massachusetts Office on Disability has coordinated a mentorship program to help people with disabilities find jobs in government offices. D'Arcangelo says the program was created to start bridging the wide gap that exists between people with disabilities and fair employment access. Uh, we know that people with disabilities have, as a group, which is the largest minority group, by the way, of uh, people with disabilities, we know that there are very significant challenges, both with the unemployment rate, but even more particularly with the labor participation rate amongst uh, people with disabilities as a, as a group. So. Uh, we're trying to understand that and address that and program for that as best we can. For advocates of Kayla and other people with disabilities entering the workforce, the focus is shifting toward accessible opportunities and questioning inherent expectations of disability. By starting conversations and creating more empathy toward disability disclosure, they hope people with disabilities can be hired in larger numbers with less obstacles. From Boston, I'm Marielle Carricker. Now, we're going to strip it down a bit. Literally. Reporter Connor Reed brings us a story in inequalities in an industry we don't always talk about. So I think we'll do um, maybe like a couple one minute ones. So get that twist, right? That's BU drawing professor Lucy Kim guiding her students through their first day of figure drawing in her AR-193 class. She's using charcoal to scratch out some sort of vaguely human shape on some newspaper, which is a lot more impressive than it sounds. Kim and her students draw in little one-minute bursts, capturing everything they can before a 60-second timer goes off. 
Sometimes it's tough to imagine what the finished product will look like at 35 or 40 seconds, but by the end of that first minute, what she ends up with is kind of beautiful. It goes by really fast. It's super fun. I, don't, I am assuming most of you have done figure drawing, but I personally find it, even right now, like exhilarating to do. I don't do it much, frankly, but when I do do it, I just remember it's like you get in this zone and it's amazing. And because it goes by so fast, there's like a mild adrenaline rush, which is always fun. Of course, figure drawing classes like Kim's require a figure. Something, or someone rather, for the students to sketch. Someone willing to subject themselves to the gaze of a room full of college students, and also hold really, really still for a long period of time. So I started modeling at the uh, University of Tampa. I had moved up to that Bradenton, uh, Sarasota area, all the different community centers around the area, uh, Ringling, School of Art and Design. I came up here, found so much work, I never left. That's Edward Barron. He's a 64-year-old art model from Jamaica Plain who used to own a wholesale flower shop in Florida. The business buckled after the stock market crash in 2008, and he came into modeling via his daughter, who modeled in college for extra cash. Edward sometimes works 40 to 60 hours per week, transporting himself to gigs all across Massachusetts. On the day we met, he'd been to Lincoln, Sudbury, Cohasset, and then back to Boston. During these gigs, he has to twist his body into impossible shapes, often holding poses for minutes at a time. Oh. And he does all of this naked. When I take my clothes off and stand up on that model stand, I feel like I'm in command of the room. Uh, there's nothing vulnerable at all. I have this friend in Sudbury, that I, the sculptor that I work for, and like, she lets me swim naked in her swimming pool. It's like I've become very, very comfortable with these people. I mean, when you spend hours and hours and hours uh, naked in front of a bunch of people, you become pretty comfortable and familiar with each other. When I asked him if he ever runs into students outside of the classroom or artists outside of the studio... Oh yeah, all the time. Yeah. It happens all the time. <laughs> and uh, I usually say, oh, I didn't recognize you with my clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> so Edward has a good sense of humor about it. That doesn't mean he takes the work lightly, though. Over the course of our conversation, Edward kept expressing this deep reverence for the art he and his fellow models helped produce. It felt like sort of a, yeah, ha ha, we take our clothes off, but this isn't a joke situation. To Edward, using his body to help creatives master their craft is sort of the ultimate reward. I mean, it's not just, I'm not just a naked body. I'm, I'm there to connect with the artist. And when I take a pose, I try to have a, an image in my mind that's going to create a feeling inside of myself. That feeling generates energy. That energy is radiated into the room. The artists in the room are there to receive that energy, and it inspires them to paint and draw. There is no more challenging thing to draw than the human body, because every single person that's going to judge that painting understands what a human body looks like. And all the intricacies of the human body, the nude body, uh, is quite beautiful when they render it in, in charcoal or paint or, or whatever medium they're using. Um, it's, it's strikingly beautiful to see uh, artwork of the figure. The guy cares about what he does. He believes in the work he's helping create. He also likes the independence that modeling gives him. After 30 years in the business world with his flower shop, Edward says the freedom of managing his own schedule and deciding who he gets to work for is liberating. 
he sees himself as a bit of a lone wolf, and modeling works for him, because he doesn't have to see anyone he doesn't want to. He's alone out there, and he likes it like that. Models don't usually have coworkers. We're alone on the modeling stand, and while we may recognize each other in artworks that are hung in studios that we work at or um, images that are posted on social media, um, we don't usually meet each other. That's Natalia Carboido. And Natalia is also a nude model living and working in New England. She got her start six years ago when she was 26 after a boyfriend suggested she try modeling to make some money. I don't know how serious he was, you know, men say things. Natalia sees the loneliness of modeling a little differently than Edward does. Where Edward focuses on the benefits of being an independent contractor, Natalia points out some potential vulnerability. She's careful not to paint the world as some great trap for nude models and insists that the vast majority of her experiences have been positive. But still, at the urging of some of her colleagues, Natalia formed the New England Models Association, a sort of guild meant to unify models who would otherwise be going at it alone. She sees it both as a social community and a space to enact change in the profession. So this is um, a really nice way to connect and support each other and um, rant sometimes or, or warn each other, you know, if there have been people that are less than savory to work with where we're able to alert each other immediately. We unfortunately recently had an incident where a model discovered a camera. So there was a guy who ran two sessions, one in Boston, one in Cambridge, and he was filming us through um, with a camera that was inside a tissue box on his desk. And he's been running life drawing sessions for over a decade, so we don't know exactly how long he's been doing it for. But the model who found it didn't have to be alone. Since the guild was in place, um, someone told her to call me immediately. Um, I went along with another model, so three of us went to the police so she didn't have to deal with that alone. The other one, which um, was really important to me when we started, was to get a standard minimum wage in place. So there are loads of places all over greater Boston who are hiring models. The median wage when we started was around $20 an hour, so I, I thought that, okay, we should try to get everyone up to that, but there were, there were several places who were far below it. And uh, models are in almost all cases hired as independent contractors. So I'm sure you know what this means, but um, no benefits whatsoever, no health insurance, no travel stipends, no paid vacations, no time off, no retirement, and we usually have to owe taxes at the end of the year. And if you consider all that with the fact that we make at or below the line of poverty in Massachusetts, you start to understand why a certain wage is necessary. And 20 seems like a lot. I know um, some people are after just a $15 minimum wage, but again, a lot of those people will be getting benefits and stuff. And we don't usually work 40 hours a week. Um, this is like extremely physically demanding work. Edward touched on that too. Modeling is hard. Really, really hard. Both Natalia and Edward mentioned their joints aching from having to hold poses that engage muscles most of us probably don't even know that we have. So why do it, right? Why spend your time and your energy and your gas on going to and from all of these gigs all over the city, run the risk of being photographed by some guy with a Kleenex box? What keeps you in the game? I, I'll have to confess to maybe a bit of um, naivete because I tell people a lot that I actually feel safer naked in a studio than I do fully clothed walking down the street in say Central Square or something where I get a lot of unwanted attention. Sometimes like outright 
scary sort of threatening things and another kind of practical reason for me personally is just that I can't sit in front of a computer screen for eight hours a day and I'm really not sure what I'm gonna do after this because it seems like almost everything else involves that I think it would just suck my soul right out so being physical being present we're not under surveillance where um, it's just sort of very private intimate atmosphere and when people people really respond to the effort that you're producing, it's it's wonderful. It, you definitely get a high from it. So I mean, there are lots of things that I that I love it for. And yeah, when I do see a painting or a sculpture of me that's hanging on a wall somewhere, I don't think I'm necessarily immortalized. I think you know human beings will go extinct at some point, and maybe this planet will be a ball of fire again. But um, you to see to see that my effort what had something to do with that object coming into being um, it's a very fulfilling feeling that fulfillment apparently is somewhat contagious as i'm sure you can imagine some of natalia's family members her grandmother specifically had reservations when she announced that she was going to pursue a career in nude modeling not feeling she could really explain the value of her work to her grandmother natalia decided to show her instead my grandmother had some reservations about it. Not about it not being practical, but just being being nude around sure. people. Um, so what I did was I had her go to one of my gigs where I was partly clothed. Um, MFA has drawing in the galleries mm -hmm. every Wednesday night, yeah. which is great. So, we're, so partly clothed, but I had her come and draw and sort of have the experience. And um, it, it changed her mind. She, she saw how beautiful it was, how difficult it was. Um, she saw people around her doing really really beautiful things and um, you know I explained to her what it's like you know it's it's not a giant orgy or something um, and as I said to you before like very rarely do I feel unsafe um, and now she has a folder of lots of pictures of, of paintings and drawings of me that she like shows everyone it's kind of embarrassing so she went from from being really reticent about it to being really supportive about it Natalia says that she knows she can't model forever in two years, Edward will begin collecting retirement and letting off the gas pedal a bit. It's worth noting, too, that Edward declined to join Natalia's association. He called himself not much of a joiner and said he didn't want to get caught up in the, quote, drama of an organized labor situation. Listening to the two of them talk, though, it's almost impossible to think about deadlines or disagreements. Even if you've never modeled or drawn a nude figure before, Edward and Natalia give you the sense that it might be the most important job in the world. In an increasingly digital landscape, doing something with the body feels almost revolutionary. And sometimes revolutionary is worth $20 an hour. For Boston University, I'm Connor Reed. You've been listening to Not Fair, the podcast. On our next episode, we'll dive into stories of people trying to keep the communities in places that they call home. I've been your host, Zoe Mitchell.